59. At verse 16 we read, But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold, a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. He does rule, he does reign, and he will bring the answer to our prayer. Father, we trust that you will be our strength and guide this morning as we study your word. Just keep us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us focus and pray that as your name is uplifted throughout this uh, campus here today, that you will be glorified and magnified in the service, service that's concurrent, the service to follow, and in the other classes of this hour. We pray your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. If you turn to the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel, I'll read the first 11 verses again. By, by now, the first 11 verses should be fairly familiar to you, since we've been on these verses for two Sundays now. But it's a really important passage. Beginning at verse 1, Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when it came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and, he call, and, and that place is called Perazuzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Last week, as we looked at this passage, I emphasized the fact that the desire was right, but the method was wrong. In his enthusiasm to honor the Lord, David failed to seek out and to follow the God-ordained procedure. He failed to remember or to seek out the truth from the Word of God. I emphasized last time, and I hope everybody understood it in the correct way, that enthusiasm in worship of the Lord is good. There's no doubt about that. However, it cannot replace, nor can it compensate for, a lack of obedience to God's Word. As Samuel proclaimed to Saul, and you remember it when we studied in the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants obedience more than He wants anything else, more than He wants our money, more than He wants our, our singing, more than He wants any other thing. He wants our obedience because Jesus said to His disciples that if you love Me, you will do what I say. Which, if you take it in the reverse, means if we don't do what he says, we don't love him. And so I, th I think that's very important. I think that becomes clear as we read this particular passage because David was, was 
genuinely enthusiastic and, and this 30,000 people were enthusiastic about what God was doing and bringing the ark out of this place and putting it centrally as it was supposed to be. And yet in the midst of it all, God acted in a way that David found to be incredulous. How can you do this to, to us, Lord? And David was angry at the Lord for killing Uzzah. I think eventually David's anger turned upon himself because he recognized that he had allowed this disobedience. He who should know better had allowed this disobedience. And I've emphasized this before, but if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, where God, even though God had proclaimed that he was king over Israel and that uh, Israel should not ask for a king, but he, he knew they would, and so he put in Deuteronomy the passage which says that when you do have a king, that king is to hand copy the scripture for himself, to be a scribe, to write out the scripture. And if you've written out the scripture, how can you ever say, oh, I didn't know, you know, because you've copied it, you've written it, you've been exposed to it. And so uh, David probably hadn't come to that point yet, but, but David was, of course, a man after God's own heart. And so this disobedience, I think he began to take responsibility himself and to realize that really Uzzah's death was his responsibility. In the meantime, on a more positive note, the ark was housed in the home of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The name Obed-Edom only appears in scriptures related to the reign of David, which seems to emphasize the fact that this Obed-Edom was a single individual, that there's only one person in Scripture with the name Obed-Edom. Obed, the word means servant. Edom, what was Edom? Okay, it was a country that was founded by, by Esau and it bore the name that was given to Esau. Remember when Esau was born, what color was he? Red. And so they gave him the nickname Edom, Red. And, and later he reinforced the fact that um, red would be the downfall of him when he, when he traded his birthright for that red lentil stew that Jacob was making. He said, give me some of that red stuff. I'm dying of hunger. What good will my birthright do me? So, so the, the term Edom becomes doubly applicable to the man Esau. And so Edom is actually, uh, when I was growing up, my father had a friend who was called Red, simply because he had red hair. And so that's really kind of what we're talking about here, but it also was the name of the country that was founded by Esau. From 1 Chronicles, we won't turn there at this point, but from 1 Chronicles chapters 15 and 16, we discover that Obed-Edom was a Levite and that he belonged to the family of Korah of the clan of Kohath. As such, his responsibility and the responsibility of his family was to be what the scripture calls gatekeepers of the ark, overseers of the security of the ark of the covenant. He was therefore not an Edomite. So we might say, well, why is he called the servant, servant of Edom? Why, why would you name somebody servant of Edom if he's not an Edomite? Now, it's possible, of course, that the family at one time lived in Edom, but that's really highly unlikely. The Edomites and the Moabites and the Israelites were not on very friendly terms. It's also possible that when he was born that the family had a, 
Maybe his father was nicknamed Red, or maybe there was somebody very important in the family whose name was Red, and so uh, he was called the Servant of Red. But really, you know, what, what I think is this, and I can't validate this from Scripture, but I, I think that since he was of the family, the clan that was supposed to oversee the ark, in other words, they're supposed to have direct connection with the tabernacle, and the fact that the tabernacle was made up primarily of red-dyed cloth and also red-dyed hides, that what we're talking about is someone who was to be the servant in the red place. Servant of Edom, servant of the red, servant in the red place. And, and the reason I think that in part is that in the history of the Byzantine Empire, which was uh, centered at Constantinople, which today is known as Istanbul, there was in the royal palace a specific room that was the birthing room for anybody who was a member of the royal family. You were born in that room, and that room was royal red. And in Greek, the word for actually kind of purple is porphyry. And so anybody born in that room was known as, if it were, let's say, Anna, Lady Anna, was Anna Porphyrogenitus, Anna born in, of the purple, born into the royal family. And so the idea of, of a name being attached to somebody for a structure that they were a part of, born in, worked in, is not an unusual thing down through the course of history. So I, I think at least it's possible that that is where he got his name. Whatever the case is, he's called Obed-Edom the Gittite. Gittite. The word Gittite usually refers to somebody who is born or comes from the city of Gath, or a city by the name of Gath. The word Gath means wine press. So there are many Gaths, really. The main Gath, of course, was right here. And that, of course, was a city belonging to the Philistines. So it's probably not very likely that he was born there. But there was also a city which is mentioned in Joshua that was given to the tribe of Levites that was called Gath Rimmon, which is located a little bit further over this way, not too far from Aphek here. Actually, it's just a few miles from where modern Tel Aviv is. A modern Tel Aviv is, you see the word plain there? That's right on top of where modern Tel Aviv, modern Tel Aviv is right through here. And Gath Rimmon was located just to the east of there. And most believe that's probably why he became known as the Gittite, was that he was probably born in that Levitical city. But it's also possible that he was given the title Gittite because he did operate a wine press. Because Gath just simply means wine press, and a Gittite is somebody who has something to do with the wine press as well as have to do with a city named wine press. So whatever all it turns out to be, those seem to be the roots of this man's uh, name. But what is, I think, important here is emphasized in verse 11, and that is that the ark resided in Obed-Edom's home for three months. And during that time, God blessed Obed-Edom and his family. Exactly how that blessing was manifested, we are not told. It is not spelled out for us. But certainly it was obvious. It was obvious to everyone who noticed the family, noticed that God was doing something for this family. Verse 12 tells us, that the blessing extended to all that belonged to Obed-Edom. So his crops, his herds, his children, family relationships, health, 
all of these things were obviously blessed by God. His crop was probably taller than anybody else's, and his lamb or his his ewes were lambing at a higher rate than anybody else's were. And as a result, it was obvious that he was undergoing a radical blessing from the hand of God. If we were to go back in the passages before this, where it talks about the Ark of the Covenant being in the home of Abinadab in Kiriath Jerim. Remember, that's where the Ark resided, was right here. Remember, it had gone through the several cities of the Philistines after it had been captured and wreaked havoc in every one of the cities. And so the Philistines had put it on a carton and just let it go into Israel. It had first come to Beth Shemesh, and because the men of Beth Shemesh were irreverent and, and they tried to look in the Ark, God destroyed many of them. So the Ark eventually was sent over here to Kirith Jerim, and it resided in the house of Abinadab for at least half a century possibly as much as three quarters of a century. So it was a very long time residing in this town, but you will search those passages in vain to find any statement indicating that God blessed Abinadab. And the question is, why? Why, why does God so obviously bless Obed-Edom, and why was there no evidence that God had blessed Abinadab? Well, part, certainly the core of the answer is in that Abinadab was not a Levite. His family was not a Levitical family. As a result, he, this was not his responsibility. He, the ark was not supposed to be in his house. Oh, he guarded the ark and, and kept it safe and nothing happened to it as if God couldn't guard it himself. But he was not authorized for such a task. And the question is, why didn't somebody find a Levite and put it into a Levite's home? And of course, the answer can only be that nobody was paying attention to the Word of God. Abinadab was not cursed by the presence of the ark, obviously like the Philistines had been, or else he would have gotten rid of it. Uh, but there's no evidence of obvious blessing. And in fact, we could even say that the fact that his grandson, the scripture here refers to Ohio and, and Uzzah, I mean, in the English translation, translation calls him them sons, but uh, if you look at the word in Hebrew, it, it simply means descendant. And uh, so it certainly were the grandsons, because we're talking about a long time later, after the, after the ark was first taken into Benadab's house. And one of his grandsons would be slain as a result of the ark. And so we could say that in little way, there, there may have been a, a curse, at least in the death of his grandson. So the difference is obedience. <laughs> the difference is obedience to the Word of God. It just keeps coming up at us. In the case of Obed-Edom, not only was he a Levite, but he was of the family whose job it was to secure the ark. That was their specific duty, was to be gatekeepers of the ark, to, to guard the ark, to see to its security. And so, in the absence of the tabernacle, what better place could the ark be but in the house of one of these Levites whose job it was to take care of the ark? Many people decide that they will define what God should expect of them. And then they wonder why their lives are frustrated and hopeless. Let me read a verse to you from Isaiah 45, verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? 
or the thing you are making say, he, meaning the maker, has no hands. Many people who call themselves Christians decide they're going to chart their own course. They're going to decide what, what of God's Word, if they even know it at all, applies to them and what doesn't. And they're going to interpret their own way and, and live according to their own personal interpretation. But for those of us who really, really believe in God's Word, we know that it is God who defines what must be done. He is our maker. He is the one who has written the, the manual, if you will, on how to be God's child, how to live in peace and security, to have fruitful and blessed lives. And how do we know what it is that he wants? How do we know what he's defining for us? Well, obviously, through the Word of God, right? It's the only way we can know. Oh, I, I realize that, that many people feel that, that God speaks to them in their hearts, and I'm not going to deny that. But that speaking in the heart must conform to the Scripture. It must conform to the Scripture. If it's in violation of Scripture, it isn't from the Lord. You know? so, so anytime we think the Lord is speaking to us by whatever means, uh, we have to be sure that it conforms with the written Word, because this is His revelation to us. God alone knows how many people who call themselves Christians are suffering disappointment and are experiencing joyless and non-fulfilling lives simply because they don't take the Bible seriously. They don't really believe it's that important to, to know the Word of God. Let me read a passage which is certainly very familiar to, to each of you from 2 Timothy chapter 3 at the end, which is an often quoted verse relative to the sovereignty of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What, what else do we need? All Scripture is inspired, is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training. Why? That we may be adequate and equipped for every good work. How do we get adequate? How do we get equipped? By being reproved and taught by this book, by these words. We really don't have to have some other kind of, of exterior source of information in order to live adequately before the Lord. I remember uh, one of my brothers-in-law, he, he's a senior pastor, and at the church he was pastoring at that particular time, one of his associates went to be ordained and this associate had never been to Bible school, but he had memorized scripture by the yards. And so when he went through his ordination ceremony, he didn't know all the theological terms, but he could quote scripture to match every question right to the T, you know, it's a past with flying colors. What can you say? You may not know how to call something superlapsarianism, but you can quote the scripture, you know, that goes along with it or deals with that particular point. And I think that for each of us, if we, we make the study of, of Scripture uh, paramount in our lives, we make our lives a whole lot more fruitful, joy-filled, purposeful, meaningful, because we know that, especially if we apply it, obviously, that we're walking in God's ways. And this is, of course, something that David learns out of this event. Let's read on. Uh, beginning in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 6. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. 
And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of, God, of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. In that case, it means the shofar, the ram's horn. Uh, then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and a peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, uh, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread, one of dates, and one of raisins to each. Then all the people departed, each to his house. For three months, David had been depressed because of the tragedy at what later would be called Perez Uzzah, the breakthrough, the, the outburst against Uzzah. After weeks of mulling this over in his mind and certainly complaining to the Lord, David's anger and his fear cooled. And then when he heard, God is blessing Obed-Edom like crazy because of the ark, he realized God is still at work. God is real. The ark is really where his name is still placed. And that God would bless obedience. God would bless obedience. Scripture doesn't say why the ark was put in the house of Obed-Edom, but I think it was purposely placed in the house of Obed-Edom. I don't think it was a crapshoot and just picked a house and stuck it in there. That had already happened. I, I think it was purposely put in the house of one who was a Levite and whose specific job was to oversee the ark. So David thought, this ark is blessing Obed-Edom, and that's wonderful, but it should be blessing the whole nation of Israel. It should be blessing my capital city of Jerusalem. All of Israel should be under its blessing. And so he decided to move the ark from the house of Obed-Edom into Jerusalem. Now, when he first put it in the, in the house of Obed-Edom, he said, how can the ark come unto me into Jerusalem? It was like, there's no way this ark's ever going to move during my lifetime from where it is now. I mean, it's where it's going to be because I'm not going to have anything to do with it again. But obviously through three months, God worked on his heart. And as I've emphasized to you before, it's okay to complain to God and just say, God, what is going on? I don't understand. Because as we do that, God works it through. God works it through in our lives. And, and we come to the place David did to realize, hey, it's your fault, David. Uh, God has simply acted in accordance with his righteousness and his holiness in accordance with his word. It's you, David, who, who made the error, but God forgives and, and God wants you to move on. And so uh, the ark this time would be transported strictly in the manner that God had authorized in the law of Moses for its transportation. Let's go to the parallel passage, 1 Chronicles it's chapter 15. Let me read the first three verses to begin with of 1 Chronicles 15. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. He got the point. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark to its place 
which he had prepared for it. Then go to verse 11. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God to Israel, to place it that, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Couldn't be more plain, could it? In contrast to the first attempt, now we don't know how far they got in the first attempt, remember? The distance between Kirith Jerim and Jerusalem is roughly 10 miles. How many of those miles was, were covered before the thresh, threshing floor of Nacon? We don't know. Most scholars assume that they were closer to Jerusalem rather than further. So probably not more than a couple of miles maybe away from Jerusalem. So the remaining distance was relatively small that had to, had to be covered. But in the first attempt, in contrast to the first attempt of the moving of the ark, notice what happens. The ark goes six steps. The Levites pick up the, uh, the poles, uh, four Levites on the corners, they pick up the poles and they march six steps and they stop and David sacrifices an ox and a lamb. In the previous attempt, when they began to move it from Kiriath-Jerim and were going to go all the way to Jerusalem with it from Abinadab's house, it appears that they simply took the ark, stuck it on a cart, and set out. No ceremony and no deference to the word of God. Why did they choose a cart? Well, that's how it arrived from the Philistines. Oh, that's a good example. Yeah, what do the Philistines do? That's what you ought to do. But anyway, that's what, they made a new cart. Well, that was nice. To put it on and to transport it. In the second attempt, God's word is obeyed purposely, intentionally, exactly, and God himself was honored by sacrifices. The difference was dramatic. In the first case, the price was the death of Uzzah and an absolute gloom that settled over the whole mass of celebrating people. But in the second case, as we read in that, uh, we won't go back to it, but in 1 Chronicles 15 again, the scripture says this, God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. God helped the Levites. Did he help the oxen? Well, the ark almost fell off the cart. That's why it was reached up to touch it. In this case, God helped the Levites and that the result was a joyous celebration and a great sense of satisfaction. Verses 14 and 15 of this passage in 2 Samuel especially describe the great joy of David and all the people which was expressed by what? By dancing, by shouting, by singing, and by musical instruments. I mean, they were having a grand parade. But verse 16 tells us something which should be a warning to us to keep our eyes open. The fact that whenever God is at work through his obedient people, the enemy is very near. The enemy is very near. As I've emphasized before, Satan isn't down on skid row. Those people are already in his kingdom. He doesn't need to be on Skid Row. 
Satan is in church. <laughs> Satan is where God's work is going on. Satan is trying to, of course, thwart the work of God. So here's David dancing away with total ab abandon, it seems, in front of the ark. And his wife, Michael, now notice the scripture does not say Michael, David's wife. It says Michael, Saul's daughter. That gives a totally different, you know, sense of who this woman is. She's looking out the window of the royal residence down on the street as David and the ark are going by near the entrance of the city of Jerusalem. And she, the scripture says, when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. She despised him in her heart. I think she was still ticked at being drug away from her second husband, especially to come into the royal residence and find out that she was going to be second fiddle to several other wives. Not a good situation. And so she allows herself to despise David for his unregal actions. He doesn't look like a king down there doing that, dancing. The passage in uh, 2 Samuel says that he was wearing a linen ephod. But if you go to 1 Chronicles, you discover it says he was also wearing a priestly or Levitical robe underneath the ephod. So he was wearing two garments, one of which was ankle length, the other of which the ephod was waist length. So he was wearing these two garments as he was dancing there before the Lord. The scripture says specifically, he was clothed with a robe of fine linen along with the Levites who were carrying the ark. So he looked just like a Levite. David was dressed in Levitical priestly robes. And he was leading the, profession, uh, the procession and he was making sacrifices. He was functioning as priest king. As the namesake for the lineage of Messiah, who is Jesus called? Is Jesus called the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob? No, he's called the son of David. As namesake for that lineage, David set the precedent, precedent of priest-king. And that would find its ultimate expression in Messiah, who is our priest-king. When the ark reached Jerusalem, it was ceremoniously placed inside the tent that David had prepared for it. I want to pick up there to uh, talk a little bit about this tent that David had erected and also what David's action was in, in giving all the food away. What, what's this about?